Well, good morning. It's nice to see all of you this morning. We'd love to get a Bible in your hands if you don't have one. So if you raise it, um, uh, we will get one to you. Raise that hand high. And if you have a Bible, please join me in John chapter 4. John chapter 4. I, I do have three quick items I want to draw your attention to as you're turning to John 4 or waiting for a Bible to be brought to you. Uh, number one, during second service in my office, Elder Scott Porter will be lead, leading the first covenant membership seminar. So if you're interested in learning more about FCF, uh, learning more about uh, our distinctives and practices and what makes us different from other good gospel preaching churches in town, you can uh, go down the hallway, second service, and Scott will, will um, lead that seminar. Number two, during second service today, in place of fellowship time, we're going to have a baby dedication, or really a family dedication. There's a handful of families that are going to come up, and we're, they're going to make a public commitment uh, to raise their children in the fear and instruction of Jesus. And so if you want to stick around for that and maybe line the walls or something, you're welcome to do so. That's going to be during fellowship time, during second service. And then lastly, immediately following, or rather 10 to 15 minutes following second service, as was announced, we have our um, graduation commencement for various grades moving up. And so uh, these young people in our midst, even though they were didn't have much... Um, Sunday school during this last COVID year, they're going to be coming up and we're going to be celebrating God's work in their life as they advance to the next grade. So if you want to be a part of that, uh, you're welcome to do so. There is the taco potluck uh, afterwards, and uh, you're welcome to join us there as well. If you're a single guy, you can go down to the grocery store, buy something pre-made, and come back. Okay, John chapter 4, please join me there. Well, we are in the Gospel of John together. Our series is called Following Jesus Together. This morning is part two. We're smack dab in the middle of John 4 and Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman. And uh, we are picking up right mid-conversation. And so I would encourage you, if you weren't here last time, to go online and listen to last week's sermon. Um, there's some context we're not able to pick up this morning for the sake of time. But with that, let me set before us two verses. We have a long section this morning, verses 19 to about 42. But I'm going to read verses 23 and 24 to put God's word before us, pray, and we'll look to him in his word. John chapter 4. Verse 23 and 24. But the hour is coming, Jesus says, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Well, this is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. That's what we want this morning, Father, for your spirit to magnify Christ through your, the preaching of your word this morning, that you would seek out and gather for yourself new worshipers 
who will worship you in spirit and truth. And those of us who do know you, Father, that you would fortify our souls with gospel gratitude that spills over into knowing you as you truly are. And that from our own spirits and your Holy Spirit, that we would offer you right sacrifices of praise. But Lord, we cannot do that for ourselves. Only you can do that. So that you get the glory and we get the joy. Our neighbors get the good. And so this morning, would you please oversee this time and from all of our hearts, gather worship. To that end, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's people said, amen. Well, as I said a few moments ago, our text picks up from last week mid-conversation with Jesus and the Samaritan woman. We took some time last week to look at what it means that she's a woman of Samaria and how to be from Samaria was to be the worst of the worst. We were also seeing that in this larger section, the Holy Spirit has inspired John with some characters that he has placed next to each other that juxtapose one another. What does that mean? Well, well, earlier in John chapter 3, we met Nicodemus. And Nicodemus represents all that we think that we should be to make ourselves acceptable to God. But of course, we cannot make ourselves acceptable to God. Only God can make us acceptable to God. And yet Nicodemus, he seemed, as it were, everything that we should strive to be. At least that's what we would think. And then last week, as we begin to meet the Samaritan woman, she represents all that we think that is unacceptable to God. So with Nicodemus, we begin to compare ourselves with him, and we despair, and rightly so, because we think we can never be like him. But we're not supposed to. And with the Samaritan woman, we compare ourselves, and we self-congratulate At least I'm not as bad as her. Because our proclivity as people is to compare ourselves with other people. And think that as long as I am better than someone else, God must be happy with me. But what we're discovering is that God is only happy with us in Christ. And because of Christ, and because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in our place. Dying for our sins and raising for our justification. And the irony... That we're seeing in John 3 and John 4. The irony of this longer section in John is that Nicodemus, the religious leader of religious leaders, leaves Jesus' presence at night unsaved. At that point, he does get saved later. And the Samaritan woman, the worst of the worst, leaves Jesus' presence not only saved, but she becomes, we will see in our text this morning, the chief evangelist doing more evangelism and preaching Jesus than even Jesus' own disciples. So irony of ironies, everything is turned upside down and inside out with our king. If you're taking notes this morning, the central idea of the passage comes right from the passage. God the Father is seeking out in Christ those who will worship him in spirit, and in truth. Even those who we think 
should not be saved and loved by Jesus. Let me say that again, because the first part, if you're a Christian for any length of time, we're familiar with it. But the last part that I said, we tend to forget that one. The central idea of the passage this morning is that the Father is seeking out in Christ those who will worship him in spirit and truth, even those who we think, just like the disciples thought, people should not be saved or even loved by Jesus. Well, here's the outline this morning. Number one, here's our first point, verses 19 to 26. The Father is seeking true worshipers through Jesus. The Father is seeking true worshipers through Jesus. That's verses 19 to 26. Our second point, Jesus sends Christians to reap the Father's harvest, even Samaritans. And that's verses 27 to 37. And then we'll close our time with verses 39 to 45. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Well, let's jump right in. Point number one, the Father seeks true worshipers through Jesus. Verses 19 to 26. Look with me at these verses as I read them. Again, mid-conversation, the Samaritan woman replies to Jesus. And Jesus, if you recall, has just told her to go call her husband. And that conversation ensued. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain here in Samaria nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I I know that when Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ, when He comes, He will tell us All things. And Jesus said to her. I. Who speak to you. Am he. Well Jesus points out in this beginning section of the message this morning. That the Samaritans. These. um, Half breed type people that they looked down upon. uh, Who have this mingled history characterized by pagan religion and taking things of God and mingling them with idol worship and and they were a mixed ethnicity that um, suffered under hardship under the Assyrian kings that that through their mindset the Jews and the Samaritans each thought the other was the worst of the worst and and we know from history that the Jews would go around Samaria rather than through Samaria to avoid being defiled I did mention last time that 
uh, even this recent history that we've seen, the tension that we've seen between Israel and Hamas, is a good illustration of what it would have been like back then, 2,000 years ago, for their relational tensions. But Jesus points out to this woman that the Samaritans were always wrong about their place and practice of worship. They were wrong. But here's the shock. The Jews were right. God had told them through Moses to build a tabernacle and then David wanted to build a temple. Then David's son Solomon built the temple and built it in Jerusalem. And the shock of this passage that comes to us in verse 21, and shock is too small and simple of a word, is that the Jews themselves, the Israelites, are about to be wrong about their place and their practice of worship as well. For the Israelites, the gravitational center of worship is about to change. How is this possible? We'll look again at verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. You see, Jesus says an hour is coming. And that's always a reference to his death for our sins on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, the outpouring of the spirit. Jesus says an hour is coming or a salvation historical shift or a new covenant is coming. And, and a, a shift is coming where true worship will no longer be in Jerusalem. Why? Well, if we lift our eyes from these verses to the broader context we've been looking at in John, we've already seen from chapter 1, we saw in chapter 2, that the temple is no longer the temple. That the rebuilt temple was never God's dwelling place. It's not God's temple because Jesus himself is the true temple. Do you remember what Jesus said at the end of John 2? Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And then John says he was speaking about the temple of his body. Christ is the true temple. So that means that worship is no longer a place Worship is a person. Now, it's always been a person, God himself, but it was mediated through a physical locality, a geographical footprint in Israel on the Temple Mount. But now Jesus is saying, no more and no longer and never again, it's me. Right? John chapter 1, God became flesh, the word became flesh and tabernacled or tented among us. Now, she, the Samaritan woman, she didn't know this yet, but, but we do. We have that insider knowledge because we have John 1 and 2 and 3. We, we know these things. So Jesus is alluding to a profound biblical reality. Not only the place of worship will change, because if Jerusalem was the temple and the temple had the priesthood, and the sacrifices, and the whole uh, priestly system, everything was going to change. Jesus is telling the Samaritan woman, he's implying that no more will the sacrifices of blood and uh, the blood of bulls and goats 
take away sin because it never could take away sin. They would cover sin, but only Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, would be the one who would remove their sins. You see, what Jesus is hinting at with this woman, and we know because we have these first three chapters, is that Christ himself, forever and always, from this moment on here in the word, that Jesus himself is the new, true, and eternal temple. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the new, true, and eternal high priest who's offered the once-for-all sacrifice, no sacrifices to ever be made again. He is the final and once-for-all priest who has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God because there's no more work to do. That's the argument of Hebrews. And here Jesus is in Samaria talking to the Samaritan woman, and when he says that the place of worship is going to change, so will the practice because it's centered on a person. God in the flesh. One commentator notes the irony about this woman, ignorant of God's word, ignorant of the place of worship, unknowing of God's true practices. He says of her, she had never been closer to the place where God is worshipped than when she was at that well in Samaria looking into Jesus' eyes. She was standing before the true temple of God and the true revelation of the Father. And, and, and it may be if you pause at this moment that some of you have come in here this morning thinking that there's those things that you need to do to earn God's favor. You, you may have come in here this morning thinking that you need to pray towards Jerusalem or look towards, to, look towards Jerusalem as if there was some mystical power in praying to that direction to earn God's favor. Know what Jesus is saying to this woman. He is saying to us, friend, look to Christ. You look to Jesus. You look to his cross and through the cross to the empty tomb and you will see the one who is the place of worship, Jesus himself. It's like what we're told at the end, well, in John 3, we, we look to Jesus in the way that Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, and we, just as Israel looked up to what Moses lifted up, we look to Jesus lifted up, and we are saved. Friend, realize that there's no work for you to do. You simply look to Jesus and live. Because in looking to Jesus, he removes your sins and your shames, your guilt by faith when you believe on him. Verse 23 says, Jesus continues, the hour is coming and is now here. Now note this, this should be underlined in your Bibles. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, contrasted with flesh. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. You see, those words nestled in the middle of 23 should comfort your souls. The Father is seeking. Now, we're going to turn back to that a little bit later at the end of the message. But the question now is, what is God the Father seeking? 
in, in God sending the Son, the second person of the Trinity, becoming flesh, and then later after Jesus dies and rises and pours out the Spirit, and the Spirit fills the church and sends the church on mission, the Father is seeking. What is He seeking? Worshippers. Worshippers. Worshippers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. You know, oftentimes in language, we will take two words and put them together to create a new word, right? Windshield is the piece of glass on the front of your vehicle because it shields you from the wind. And those two words come together to to explain what that is. Uh, Butterfly is not a flying piece of butter. But you do know it's a beautiful um, bug, In Greek, the word for worship is a combination of two words that is to kiss towards. To kiss towards. Now that's not what worship means. But you can see how those two words coming together has this element of affection and adoration towards God. To worship in the Bible is to have a heart that overflows with gratitude and dependence upon God. Not self-gratitude, but gratitude in God Himself. Not, not independence, but dependence upon God. That's Worship is, is reverence towards the awesome glory. Worship is affection and love for a good, good Father who has loved us in His Son. Worship is is beholding God in His glory as the perfect and majestic and infinite and inexhaustible being that He is. There is no other of quality and majesty such as Him. Worship is God's rightful due. And for those who have been born again, John chapter 3, worship is our joyful pleasure it's what god deserves and is worthy of and it's what we are born again to savor we find joy and satisfaction faction in delighting deep down in father son and holy spirit you see the dark heart of darkness that we've been looking at these past weeks does not delight to worship and cannot worship in spirit and cannot worship in truth But when one is born again, we can delight deep down. And friends, understand this. Jesus is saying that he, rather the Father through the Son, is seeking worshipers in spirit and truth. This means that worship of God is never of our own invention. The worship of God is never your own gut intuition. Worship of God is never on our own terms, even if it feels good to you. Because your feelings do not create truth. Even if it feels good to you, Even if it feels good, that doesn't mean it's right. Do you remember the story of David and the ark? 
David a heart overflowing with a desire to bring God's footstool into Jerusalem because it had been captive by the enemies. And they brought out all of Israel, came out to worship and dancing and praising and singing songs to God. They built a very nice cart that had been never used before. And they took some oxen that had never been used before. And they put the ark, the box on the footstool. And they had men walking alongside it. And then it was traveling along. And then an ox stumbled and the cart moved. And then God's throne was about to fall off. And a man put out his hand and touched it and died. You know why he died? God killed him. David was truly sincere and sincerely wrong. Meaning, had he read his Bible well, he would know that you were never, ever, ever supposed to put the ark on a cart. It defiled it. You were supposed to put poles through it, and the priests were supposed to carry it on their shoulders, and it was to never be touched. We live in a hyper-pragmatic age where if it seems to draw a crowd and crowds necessarily mean that God is showing us favor, then whatever we do to draw a crowd must be necessarily a good thing and therefore God must be pleased with that type of worship. Friends, that's false thinking. God is not a pragmatist. And so what God wants us to do is to worship him on his own terms. And his own terms are communicated in black and white and sometimes red in our Bibles. Because he speaks to us. So God establishes his word and what right worship is. And that we must worship him according to his terms. And fundamentally, verse 24 says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? What does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? Is that, is that two different things? Sometimes you can worship him in spirit. Sometimes you can worship him in truth. No, those are not two different ways or two different aspects of worshiping God. No, it's two sides of one coin. It is impossible for you to worship in truth apart from the spirit. And it's impossible to worship in the spirit Without the truth, they are one and the same. But that is an interpretive issue here. If you look down there in verse 24 in your Bible, in verse 23, some of your English translations, the word spirit is capitalized, meaning your translators believe that it's being a reference to the third person of the Trinity, God's Holy Spirit. My ESV has a lowercase referring to my inner, immaterial part of my person. My spirit, there's an interpretive decision because in the original language, you don't capitalize uh, God's name or titles like we do in English. It's, it's lowercase in Greek. Now, this actually isn't a problem because both are true. I think it's referring to capital S spirit, contrary to my ESV, but both are biblically true. You see, John is a master of double meaning because Jesus was. So the short answer is that both are biblically true. We already saw in John chapter 3 that long conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Where Jesus was explaining Ezekiel 36 to Nicodemus. And we saw in John chapter 3 
that no one can see, let alone enter, the kingdom of God without first being born again or born of, water, born of water or born from above or born of the Spirit. And we learn there that part of what makes Jesus' new covenant new when he dies and rises for us is that he makes us new and that he gives us new hearts or new spirits and his Holy Spirit comes to indwell us. So both are true. So should it be capital or lowercase? It really doesn't matter as long as you have both in mind. That both are necessary for true worship. We get new spirits alive or born again. And God's Holy Spirit. And both are necessary for true worship. And truth here in this passage is synonymous with the gospel of Jesus Christ centered on his death and resurrection from all of scripture. Meaning. For Nicodemus, for example, if Nicodemus still believed he had to be in the Mosaic covenant to offer true worship, now that the new covenant had come, that is false worship because it's obsolete and had passed away. For the Samaritan woman to think that she had just the first five books of the Bible and worshiping on Mount Gerizim where they were there in Israel, and if that was sufficient, that also would be false worship. To have true worship is to have worship in the true temple, namely Jesus. So any other form of worship that any other person contrives that is not centered on God become flesh, second person of the Trinity, is false worship. If you have a false view of Jesus... False Jesuses cannot save. False Gospels cannot save because false Jesuses are fake and not real as are fake Gospels. To worship God is to worship God on His terms. He sets the standards. He sets the belief. And praise God for all that's in us. We want to make man-made religion We get the free grace of God in Christ where he says, I've done it all for you. And so we approach God on his terms, namely by grace through faith. Trusting in the second person of the Trinity, his death for all of our sins, past, present, and future, and his valiant resurrection from the grave. If you don't believe that and think that you're offering true worship, you're not. You're not. And we live, friends, in this day and age where everyone thinks that they can have a pick-and-choose theology, a pick-and-choose Jesus, a Jesus made in their own image, a Jesus in their own likeness, where they like a little bit of the gentle parts of Jesus, but not the hard parts of Jesus. They, don't, they, they like the idea of heaven, but they don't like the hell. They, they, don't, they, they like the free offer of grace, but not the calls to repentance. But Jesus says we must worship him in truth. And that means to know him as he is. And we know him as he is through his spirit in the word. In the word. And so read your Bibles. Read your Bibles. And know Christ 
in his gospel so well, fixate on Jesus so much that when the false does come, you're not an expert in falsehood, you're an expert in truth, and it's very easy to spot the lie. And this is underscored by Jesus' final words in this exchange. Look at verses 25 and 26 as we close out this first point. The woman, the Samaritan woman, marvels, it seems, and she says, I know that Messiah, the Mashiach, the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. Christ is the Greek of Hebrew Messiah. And when he comes, she says, he will tell us all things. Now, Jesus has already promised living water. Jesus has already said, go call your husband. Jesus has now spoken of uh, where true worship will be, namely in himself. And Jesus says to her in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. I think the ESV has butchered this. Here's why. Literally in the Greek, here's how it reads. Jesus said to her, I am who speaks to you. So if you uh, dust off your memory and go back to the very first sermon in this series, we know that a key feature of the Gospel of John are these I am statements of Jesus. There's the I am statements where he is saying, I'm the bread of life, I'm the good shepherd. But there's also these emphatic statements that he makes where he is just saying, I am. And we saw in that first sermon that what Jesus is doing when he says to the woman, she says, the Messiah is supposed to come. And he says, I am who speaks to you. This is the first use in the Gospel of John of that emphatic I am statement. Jesus is claiming unequivocally and clearly, to be Yahweh in the flesh, the same person who spoke to Moses from the burning bush, has now been made flesh. And this is the very claim for which the Jewish religious leaders will kill Jesus later on in the gospel account. So Moses encountered God in the burning bush, the I am in the burning bush, And now the Samaritan woman is encountering God at the well of living waters, namely Jesus. But to believe this is to believe the truth and to truly begin to worship. Which leads to our second point. Number two, Jesus sends Christians to reap the Father's harvest, even Samaritans. Look at verses 27 down through 38. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that Jesus was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek to her? Or why are you talking with her to him? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to Jesus. Meanwhile, verse 31, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, 
I tell you, lift up your eyes and see. The fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap, or to gather, that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Well, ironies abound here. So we've, we've closed out this scene. So we, we, we saw in the beginning last week that, that Jesus was weary. He came to the well. He was thirsty. He couldn't draw water. His disciples went into enemy-occupied territory to go get food. The woman comes out. Now here she has had a conversion experience. She is racing back into the town. And as she's going, the disciples are arriving with food. And ensues now a new conversation. A new conversation, Jesus has discipled this woman, and now Jesus is going to disciple his disciples. And the ironies abound. The conversation with the Samaritan woman centered around thirst, and now it's centering around hunger with the disciples. The woman left empty-handed, even though she came with a jar to get the water, and she leaves to go evangelize the town. The disciples return with hands full, having come from the town and apparently told exactly zero people about Jesus. But she goes to tell them. The disciples return with hands full of food, not telling the town about the bread of life. And as always, this serves as a discipling moment of the disciples and us. It's possible that when Jesus tells them, lift up their eyes... In verse 35, the town is already making their way out to Jesus because of the woman's evangelism. There's an amazing image there. Wherever they're at, maybe they see the crowds coming. And here Jesus is teaching two key truths for the disciples and us to embrace. Look at verse 34. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Given the context, we can hear the echo of Jesus' words in Matthew 4, 4. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus' mission from the Father was to perform the gospel by dying and rising for our sins. Jesus continues his mission through you. Do you know that? The mission we read of in Scripture is Jesus continues. So vital, so central, so significant was the work the Father gave the Son that Jesus said accomplishing the Father's will was his food. And the implication is that to do the Father's will is our food too. Which is to make disciples of all nations. So the first truth Jesus is highlighting is the centrality of mission for the Christian life which this side of the cross and tomb is planting and strengthening local churches. And that leads to the second truth, which Jesus highlights. Evangelism is the starting point of making disciples. People must be born again, but Jesus' emphasis is on God's broad scope of evangelism. What do I mean? Your evangelism doesn't depend upon you. 
that probably sounds counterintuitive. And it's opposite the way that we feel when we are sharing Jesus with somebody. What do and Jesus seeks, and the Father seeks worshipers through Christ, through you. And Jesus' point is that the Father uses many means through many people over time with the gospel to bring people to faith in Christ. So the joy and encouragement of this passage is to know that evangelism and its success does not depend upon you, but the process does. You do have to open your mouth or hand the track or type on the keyboard. You cannot cause a person to be born again. A person cannot cause themselves to be born again. That's all the work of God, and yet God uses means. He works through prayer. He works through preaching. He works through speaking the word, and it's all a work of God. As his people, you and me, share Jesus, preach Jesus, preach the gospel, call people to repent of their sins, and to believe in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Verse 37, For the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. The disciples needed to know that making disciples was the priority of their lives, as necessary and vital as food and drink. And they needed to know the fruit of their labor was based on other people having planted seeds before them. Is that your food and drink? There is more to the Christian life than making disciples. But it's never less than that. Why are you in the classes, the the degree program that you're in? Why do you live with the people that you live with? Why do you work where you work? God's ultimate purpose in that, since he didn't bring you home, is that there's work to do, and that is making disciples of Christ. But here we discover that it's building on the labors of others. And ultimately, our evangelism depends upon God. Our responsibility is to be faithful, and we trust fruitfulness to God. And that is the most freeing, compelling, joyful, invigorating reason to be an evangelist and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's not about winning arguments or manipulating people into the kingdom because you can't. You can manipulate false professions of faith. You can make false converts by, by, by winning arguments and forcing people in, as it were. But here you recognize that it's freeing to know that we preach the gospel, we're faithful to the death and resurrection of Jesus, calling people to repent of sin. Yes, we should be able to argue apologetics and give a reason for the hope that's in us and all those things. But at the end of the day, you sleep soundly because God gives the increase. And our tendency is to think that we are the first and last line of defense. And if this person doesn't meet Jesus in this encounter with that person, that they've been lost. But friends, some of you know the story that my, my mom has worked in hospice. And she has prayed with cantankerous old men in their 90s to receive Jesus Christ. Who then become sweet, smiling, old, wrinkly men with tears going down their faces. 
because they love Jesus in their final moments. And that means that there was likely decades upon decades, maybe a, a wife, a child, a grandma who shared the gospel and they got saved. And so what, because God is sovereign in salvation, we never give up and we never lose hope. That's what Jesus is saying here and more. One of the greatest gospel lessons in the passage is that the gospel is for the most outcast and unthinkable person you can imagine. Let me say that again. There's something else, and there's a word for us here, and, and I'm going to get into your business. There's another thing here. Jesus is choosing to tell his disciples this story not in Nazareth, not in Bethlehem, not in Jerusalem. Where is Jesus using this teachable moment? In Samaria. In Samaria, with the bad guys, the ones we hate, the ones we don't like, if we're the disciples. We're seeing that one of the greatest gospel lessons in this passage is that the gospel is for the most outcast and unthinkable person you can imagine. We live in a divided age of outrage. And the way that many Christians speak and treat others of other political stripes or instincts, views on masks and vaccination, we turn people into functional Samaritans. Because, of course, we are always right, and they're wrong, and the sinful, ungodly speech and interactions of the world are brought into the church. And what ends up happening for us so often online is we would, take, we would rather take the long way around the digital Samarias and the digital Samaritans than defile ourselves by those dirty enemies. That's how the Samaritans were viewed by the disciples. Can someone to your political left or right, for that matter, be saved? What does your social media feed say? Can we, can we bring up your social media feeds right now? We actually have secretly gone on to some members' feeds, and I'm going to bring up your Facebook and Instagram account right now. Does the sum total of your rhetoric and interaction with people who you are against and are against you look like you are fighting against Samaritans, or are you using those as gospel errands to go on a gospel mission to save? What does your social media feed say about those to your political left or right? What does Jesus say to his disciples? How about your friend who is a critical race theory embracing LGBTQ plus person? Can they be saved? 
What does 1 Corinthians 6 say? And such were some of you. But you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Would your social media feed say that someone who embraces those ideologies can be saved? Or are they a Samaritan that you want to walk around? What does Jesus say? Defund the police. Socialists. Marxists. Universal basic income. Reparations. How about people who just simply want to talk about race and immigration and ethnicity? Can they be saved? What does Jesus say? What does your social media feed say? My point is that the disciples likely would have been posting, praise God we're going around Samaria because of those dirty Samaritans. But what does God do? He goes right to the heart of Samaria, right to the worst of all Samaritans, this poor woman who seems to be an outcast, even among a people who are outcasts, and Jesus goes to give her living water. Do you give living water to those who disagree with you? The question before us is who are your modern day Samaritans? Who are those who would Jesus go straight towards and you would say, no, Lord, not so. Not so, Lord. Had Jesus been alive now, who would have been those functional equivalents? Remember, the religious people called Jesus a drunkard because he drank. And he even spent time with prostitutes. Could you imagine how scandalous that would be if you learned that I was at a bar with prostitutes? There would be a special business meeting and I would get fired. I don't, well, I wouldn't think so. But sometimes we try to be more Jesus than Jesus is. More holy than Jesus. And the word that rebukes me and perhaps rebukes you is that there are, should Jesus have been here now, people that he'd be going to. Right? Pride Month is coming up next month. What, what would Jesus have done? Does Jesus ever celebrate and endorse sin? No. But neither does he move away from sinners. The whole point of the incarnation, God become flesh, was to move towards sinners and sufferers, to move into the darkness, to shine his light, and he does the same through us. Still, And I think that the church in America has largely done a very bad job about how we have interacted and responded the last 20-20 year. I am not passing, I'm not giving a verdict on whether you're going to mask or no mask or vaccinate or, or vax or whatever. I have my own opinions on those, Romans 14, opinions. But what's happened is the very things that unite us, we're using peripheral things to divide us, and every pastor buddy of mine is all experiencing the same thing. Now church, I praise God, I praise God that we are together. I praise God that we're on mission together. I praise God for those things. I think His Spirit has been among us. Do I think that we could have done better in 2020? 
Yeah, I think so. I think I could have. I think we all could have. But what I find here in God's providence bringing us to the Samaritan woman is it makes me ask that question, who are the Samaritans among us now? Who are the Samaritans in 2020? And did we interact with people the way that Jesus wants us to? Sometimes under the guise of being so-called prophetic, we're just jerks. And we call out the errors, which there are many, without giving the grace of the gospel, which is the only antidote to any problem on any area, on wherever it is on the spectrum. Wherever it is on the spectrum. So when we look at modern-day Samaritans, are we going to be like the religious leaders of Israel who mocked in self-righteousness, at least I'm not like them, Or will we become humble and yielded like the disciples and say, I guess Jesus wants us to go harvest for the fields are right even among the Samaritans first. Because that's where the first great gospel harvest comes in the gospel of John. A satanic trick of this moment is to get churches and Christians off of keeping the main thing, the main thing which Paul tells us in Corinthians is Christ and him crucified. So, so we can take the beautiful truth and make it look ugly when we de-gospelize it. Anytime we attach, detach a gospel truth, or a, 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 anytime we detach any imperative command or truth of the Bible from the grace of the gospel, we are um, messing with how that truth is to be understood. No command in the Bible is meant to be understood or embraced apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when we move away from that, we are not doing what Jesus has called us to do to preach the gospel. And so Jesus' shocking lesson to the disciples is that gospel seeds have been sown among Samaritans. And now Jesus says, go reap Samaritans. Because by the way, if you remember the gospel and think back to Ephesians 2, when we come to Christ or are born again, we're made a new creation. What Ephesians 2 says, one new man in Christ. So in one sense, the Samaritans are de-Samaritaned when they come to Jesus because they become Christian. Which means that if you're an Israelite and you come to Christ, you're in one sense de-Israelited and you become a Christian. I'm going to say it. When you come to Christ as an American, you get de-Americaned. Because you become a citizen of heaven, an ambassador of Christ. Our allegiance is to Christ, first and foremost, and Him alone. I know you want me to qualify that, but I'm just going to let that hang. Gospel seeds have been sown among Samaritans. The woman and her village are coming towards Christ. And friends, Jesus is still doing the same today. Only the gospel can get us out of our sin because the gospel gets you out of your sin. The gospel rescued me. The gospel rescued you. 
And if you're here and you don't know Christ, the gospel can rescue you. Repent and turn from your sin and turn to saving faith in Jesus and believe that his death on the cross bore all of your sins and now become a worshiper of him in spirit and in truth. Nicodemus needed to become a true worshiper. So did the Samaritan woman. Both of them and everyone in between needs Jesus' living water. Will you take it to them? Final point, quick. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And Jesus stayed in Samaria, in Sychar, for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. After two days, Jesus departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem, but not knowing about Samaria, for they too had gone to the feast. This section here brings to a close the larger unit that we've been traveling in of John 2, 3, and 4. The dirty, foolish, wrong Samaritans serve as a foil against the clean, wise, and right religious leader of Nicodemus in John 2. In the temple scene of John 2, people were moving away from Jesus in the temple because he drove them out. And here in John 4, people are moving to Jesus, the Samaritans, because of his marvelous light. Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman both challenged Jesus, one by night, the other by noonday. And in a surprising turn, the one who knew the word, Nicodemus, proved he did not know the word. And the one who didn't know the word, the Samaritan woman, came to treasure it. The insider was turned out, the outsider was brought in, and the disciples should have been spreading the message of Jesus and weren't, while the outcast woman was spreading the message of Jesus and her whole village of Samaritans got saved. And they came out to the fountain of living water. The disciples were still learning what it meant that Jesus was the Savior of the world. Salvation was not only for the Jews, it was from the Jews, going to all people of all tribes, tongues, and nations. And look again at verse 23. Look again, back up at verse 23. Jesus says, The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now underline this, For the Father is seeking such people. Why is all of this happening? Why the Cana wedding feast? Why the temple clearing? Why the evening with Nicodemus? Why the John the Baptist episode? Why the woman at the well episode here? It's this small phrase, the Father is seeking. Right now, what is God the Father doing through Christ by the Spirit in the church? The Father is seeking what does that mean? He's seeking worshipers. Does this mean the Father is, is sitting with an open sign, just waiting for people to hopefully come to Him? No, this is an active term. 
God is on mission and he is in pursuit to go seek out his lost sheep. This, all that we see Jesus doing, is the Father through Jesus seeking and saving the lost. And that's why you're here now. Remember, dear friends, that if you're a believer, it's because somebody had the boldness and the love and the courage to preach Jesus to you once or many times to bring you to church or to Sunday school, whatever the deal was, you are here because someone has told you about Christ. And they told you about Christ because they loved you. And they could tell you about Christ because Christ loved you. Because he died for you. But Christ loves you because the Father loves you. You were sitting here because God, the Lord, the Almighty is seeking you. And and if you don't know Christ, he is speaking to you from his word to repent from your sins and believe. And receive the living water. Receive the eternal life. Receive Jesus and be saved. Because if he's going to save a Samaritan woman, and if he's going to save even Nicodemus, the self-righteous one, friend, then he can save you. He can save you. Perhaps like the disciples, you sit here today confused about the purpose and mission of your life. Friends, the truth, if you're a believer, that the Father himself loves you and has set his love on you through the Son, if that's not motivation to go sing the praises of God and let others know of him, it might be that you're not actually saved. That is not meant to be a guilt-inducing statement because our seasons of affection ebb and wane and, and move back and forth. But what it is, is it's a call to remember the gospel. And remembering the good news that the Father seeks us out, that moves us then to go on his mission even to Samaritans. So friends, praise God that the Father has sought you and is seeking us. Amen? Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that it is your love to not leave us where we're at, but to save us and not just justify us, but to sanctify us. Your word is true. It is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. It is food for our souls. And Lord, you have revealed to us beautiful truths and hard truths. And so we ask this morning that you would comfort us with the grace of the gospel. Grant us repentance where we need it. Anywhere that our hearts have been hard, that you would soften them and give us, Jesus, your love for the Samaritans in our lives. Because many could say that in many ways we are Samaritans to others. And yet people have loved us and come to us with your gospel. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Church, before we go to the Lord in song, we're going to take